0: Imagine you've uh, saved up a chunk of money, and you want to start investing it. So you meet with the financial planner, and he wants to manage your money. He claims he's found the secret to winning in the stock market, and if you invest with him, you, you can't lose. Meanwhile, though, you learn about his life. You find out he's completely broke, he's deeply in debt, and his car was just repossessed. So would you entrust your hard-earned savings with that investor? Would you find his wild claims credible, given his personal life? Well, let's say you're convicted to lose some weight, get in shape, and so you decide to hire a personal trainer. The first time you meet this guy, he himself is completely out of shape. He's overweight. He's out of breath. He can barely hand you some weights. So would you trust that person to train you? Would you believe this person has found the secret to weight loss and fitness? Now, people can sense this inconsistency between what you say and what you do, and they're naturally wary of it. It's only right to expect people to practice what they preach, especially if they're going to preach. You know, walk the walk before you talk the talk, right? If you're going to tell other people how to live, yet you yourself don't live that way, who's going to listen to you? And I'm sure you can imagine how this all the more so applies to Christians. And here we are aiming to enter the public square and and tell people how to live. Tell people about the way, the truth, the life. We're making huge claims. That we know the meaning to life and the answer to death. They're both found in Christ Jesus who died on the cross, rose from the dead for our salvation. And only by turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus as your your Lord and Savior will you find forgiveness and reconciliation with God and eternal life. And in addition, that, that new life that Christ gives you leads to a transformed life here and now. A life of peace and joy and love here and now. Newness in Christ transforms and gives meaning to how we live our daily lives here on earth. But who will listen to your claims if you don't evidence that peace and joy and love in your own personal life? You can make those claims at work. You can affirm those claims at church. But at home, in private, with your family, if there's anything but peace and joy and love, it's going to be a problem. If there's just chaos, division, enmity, strife, anger, you can see how that'd be seriously detrimental to your claim that in Christ, you've found right and righteous living. I mean, where's this power, this newness you speak of, if your life at home is no better than the non-Christian, that would be a problem. Now, of course, we all fall short. All of us are hypocrites to some degree. Because no one is perfected in maturity, and no one perfectly lives out their faith in public or in private. That's why we're very thankful we're saved by grace, not by works. And that grace does not excuse our sin, but it does cover our sin and pay for our sin. But the point we're making here is that if there's a huge chasm between what you say and what you do, what you believe and how you live, that's going to give a black eye to the testimony of the gospel to transform lives. Our newness in Christ should be lived out in public, but not just in public, not just at church, also in the home. In fact, it needs to start at home. If your faith in Christ cannot transform your most basic relationships, what hope is there that it can change the world? The good news, though, is that the gospel really is the power of God to save, to sanctify, to bring new life. And that newness has the power to bring new life into the home, to change our most basic and meaningful relationships. Indeed, our hope to see the whole world transformed by the power of the gospel starts in the living room by seeing the family transformed. We're going to see a little picture of what that looks like today from our passage in Colossians chapter 3. So you can open your Bibles, as we often do, to Colossians chapter 3 this morning. I know so far in Colossians chapter 3, we've learned about our newness in Christ. In Christ, by faith, we've died to sin in the old self. We've risen to new life and the new self. We're truly new in spirit. And therefore, we should live that way. Live that out. Walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We are to then practically put off the ways of the old self. Put on the ways of this new self. And so far, the emphasis here is how the newness we have in Christ should be lived out in a corporate setting, the church. And look, how we relate to one another in the church is, is vastly important. Because as we've learned, the Lord aims to use the unity of the church to impact the world. And so we need to be getting along, living as one. But, you know, the church itself will have no witness to the world if, if there's no harmony in the homes of its individual members. The family is, after all, the, the irreducible building block of society. And how do you reach the world with the gospel? It's really one family at a time, one living room at a time. And if the gospel can't transform a family, it can't transform a nation. But it can, it has, it does. We have a role to play in all this, as we've been learning, we're called to walk in newness of life, to be renewed in our minds, to let the word of Christ richly dwell within us, that we might be conformed more into Christ's image. We, we do fall short, but God is pleased as by the power of his spirit, we strive for Christ-likeness, and he will be faithful to conform us and shape us. But we just set our life, our ambition to, to do his will and to live a life pleasing to him. That's how Paul finished off this big section in chapter 3 in verse 17 he kind of wraps up everything he's been saying and he says whatever you do in word or deed do all in the name of the lord jesus giving thanks through him to god the father but after giving many instructions on what this looks like in a corporate setting paul is going to now as he's getting close to the end of the letter he's going to bring it back down to the home He's going to show now, before he finishes, what this newness in Christ should look like in the family. And so the instructions he gives, starting in verse 18 through into chapter 4, are going to deal with the household. But they're not general, They're, they're very specific. He addresses wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. All specific relationships in the ancient household. But he's going to show how. Living under the lordship of Christ changes, redefines, transforms these relationships. You our time today is a bit shorter, being a communion Sunday. So we're just going to set out and look at the first pair of verses, verse 18, verse 19. And these deal with the closest family relationships, husbands and wives. And we're just going to begin to see what new life in the home looks like. And so let's start by reading just the first pair, verse 18, verse 19, as he sets his eyes on the household. Verse 18, he says, wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. This passage and the verses that follow, they're known as a household code. And there are many like it in scripture, but in Colossians, we have the shortest version. We can only presume that Paul believed his Colossian audience was already familiar with these truths and these instructions. And so he's just giving them the briefest reminder, setting out the bare minimum. Over in Ephesians 5, by contrast, he gives the exact same instructions. Just the same thing, but he spends many additional verses just fleshing out their implications and building them up. But you know what we have in Colossians? It still suffices. And sometimes it's good to get the Cliff Notes version, just captures the essence of what God expects, what God directs. And this is the the word of the Lord. How do you live out the new life you have in Christ in the context of marriage? How does salvation transform how you relate to your spouse? It should be different, you know, BC, AD, before your salvation, after, that should radically transform your marriage. What does that look like? Well, we're going to, we're going to find out. Our aim is very simple, just to discover how new life in Christ transforms marriage. How new life in Christ transforms marriage. Just let that unfold as we go through a pair of well, pretty simple verses. Let's do that. Look at verse 18 again. He says, wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, I have to apologize in advance because I'm going to have to use profanity in the sermon. There's no other way to go through this text. I mean, I have to use a lot of the S word. And this passage is talking about submission. I'm sorry. Sorry for swearing. I don't see how else you get through the passage. And today, that, that's kind of a forbidden world, a swear word. But not so for the Bible when it comes to instructions for wives this is actually the very clear consistent direction given to women. Ephesians 5:22 Wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. 1 Peter 3:1 In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands. Titus chapter 2 verse 5 Wives are called to be subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. These instructions they're all clear, simple, straightforward. The same goes for Colossians three eighteen. Paul is as brief as can be, but it's very simple. Wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. And here he obviously assumed the Colossians knew what he meant, understood the context of this, and so he just moved right on. Didn't say anything else. But I think we know that in our culture, so much has changed when it comes to the roles of husbands and wives that. We just can't take it for granted today that that people understand what this actually means and what it doesn't mean. In fact, I think the vast majority do not really understand what God expects of wives and what this actually means and what it doesn't mean. I think most misrepresent and caricature God's word, making out to be an antiquated, misogynistic, bigoted, old-fashioned, outdated book. But since this is such a contentious issue in our culture, and mostly because there's widespread confusion and misrepresentation about what submission means, I think we would do well just to spend some extra time and fill in some blanks and round out like what the Bible says about the wife's role. And since we're only covering two verses this morning, we've got time to set the record straight and just add in and round out some teaching on what the Bible means by this call to, to wives. And we need this clarity, I think now more than ever. And so let's do that. And it's rightly, or rather I should say, uh, to rightly understand the biblical concept of submission, you need to first understand the biblical concept of headship. And this goes back to the beginning. It goes back to the purpose of marriage. God himself instituted marriage. Why? Well, it was not good for man to be alone. He made all the animals, they all had a counterpart, except Adam, and he was meant to recognize that fact. And so Eve was made, and there were two, but then immediately the two became one. Genesis 2.24, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And realize the purpose of this union was more than just procreation. Its main purpose was companionship or partnership. God designed humans to go through life with a partner, and this marriage partnership would be the cornerstone of society and the world that God was building. The husband and wife were made to serve God together. It's very important to establish that both the man and the woman were equally made in God's image. Genesis 1:27: God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. In addition, you have to recognize that God entrusted the work, the mission of stewarding this world, not just to Adam, but to both of them together. The next verse, Genesis 128, God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply the earth or multiply it, fill the earth and subdue it. You know, this union was truly to be a partnership, a tag team. Man and woman were made as spiritual equals, and when they come together in marriage, they are to work together to serve God. That's already vastly different from how most other ancient societies viewed women. Most, like the Greeks, viewed women as truly inferior creatures, a species below man. Not the Bible. But biblically, as we think through the roles of husband and wife, It starts with appreciating this fundamental unity and equality of the husband and the wife. And in fact, their union, to some degree, reflects God's own nature in the Trinity. It's alluded in Genesis 1, God speaks of himself in the plural. There's only one God, but but God exists in three persons. Each person is fully God. Without getting too deep into the mystery of the Trinity, It's clear that there's a unity and a diversity within the Godhead, but so it goes in marriage. That does not mean the husband and wife are the same in every respect, but they are fully equal in value, in worth, in being. Physically, they're different. That much is obvious, but God made them equal in being. Now, though equal in being, he did give them different roles to play. That too, however, reflects the Trinity, Scripture consistently shows the Father, Son, and Spirit that they're all one in essence, one in divinity, but they have different roles and they relate to the world differently. We consistently see that throughout Scripture, but they still work together as one. And again, it should be the same in marriage. God made man and woman as a complementary unit. They're not the same in every respect. They have different characteristics, physically, emotionally, so on. But God made them to, to perfectly come together as one unit to complement one another, where alone they, they might be insufficient. But together, they, they could do everything God wanted them to do. And there's a special glory in this harmony, where you have different and diverse parts, but they come together as one. Now, all the instruments of an orchestra have their own beauty. Violin, cello, flute, trumpet, piano, cymbal. But only when they all play together in perfect harmony do you get the glory of a symphony. And more specifically now, the the difference between the husband and the wife, when it comes to their roles, is often explained with the, the concept of headship. In the parallel of Ephesians 5, Paul says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Then he says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. What does that mean? Well, we've established the fundamental unity and equality of the husband and the wife, but we can talk more about how they practically differ in their role or their function as God designed. And this idea of headship, again, it doesn't have to do with superiority or value or worth. Men are not more important or better in God's eyes, but in God's eyes, they were made to function differently. And to be head is to be the leader. The head provides leadership, guidance, and direction to the family. And this is the role God created the man to fulfill. Meanwhile, the wife was made to be the helper, to willingly come under that headship and to fulfill the direction for the family. Now, obviously, you can't have two heads. You can imagine a team with two head coaches and they're both sending plays into the team at the same time, different plays. It would be chaos. But God. Is a God of order, and he wants order. And we'll say again, this concept of headship, it too merely reflects the Trinity. The persons of God, they're completely equal in being, just like husband and wife. But the persons of God play different roles. They have different functions, just like husband and wife. And those different functions stem from headship in the Trinity, just like husband and wife. It's why scripture explains that that the Father is head over the Son and the Spirit. This also explains why we always see the Spirit and the Son submitting their will to the Father's will. There's headship and submission in the Trinity. 1 Corinthians 11.3, for example, Paul says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now, this is why we as Christians, we can't take issue with the concepts of headship and submission, because then we're taking issue with God's own existence. I mean, just think about that, though, that the God of the universe has eternally existed as a trinity, perfectly balancing this unity and diversity. That includes a headship and a submission that have been eternally existent. That is actually part of the majesty of God's being. And so we should not oppose these concepts of headship and submission. We we should embrace them. That's part of reflecting the image of God. So whether you're a husband or wife, you should embrace just the role God has given you and your part in reflecting the Trinity. But as you know, most people today, they want nothing to do with God's order of headship and submission. They, They don't care about that, strongly against it. Even though we were made and are still completely independent on God. After the fall, man is like a wild stallion. Just wants to be free. Does not want a rider on him telling him what to do. Man is self-willed in his rebellion against God and wants to go his own way. That applies to men and to women. All of us. All want autonomy. All want to be free from God's rule. All want to be their own God's calling the shots. That's just in the nature of fallen mankind after the fall. There's no exceptions. That's our rebellion. But this rebellion, as you can imagine, before God right away worked itself into our horizontal relationships, and this rebellion that's in our hearts instantly spoiled God's perfect union of marriage. As mankind became utterly selfish in his core, husbands no longer used their headship to serve their wives, but to serve themselves. They became little kings, lording their authority over their subject. The wives, meanwhile, sought to revolt against their husband's headship. I mean, they should be the head. They should call the shots. They know better. And so this power struggle began that never should have been there. Did not God himself allude to this in the curse? Genesis 3.16, God said to the woman, Your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. And the relationship of husband and wife should have been the one of complete harmony, peace, unity, love. But because of sin, marriage has been marked by strife, conflict, and division. That both the man and the woman compete and struggle for power and control. They don't want to serve God. They don't want to serve one another. They want to serve themselves. In our modern society, things have gotten so bad that some believe the only recourse is just to throw out the entire institution of marriage. The world is so broken and, and sunken in depravity, they've lost all hope that a man and woman could actually live their whole lives together in peace and harmony. There's no more hope. They just That's abandoned marriage. But you know what? In the world, when sin reigns unchecked, there is no hope. But there is hope for the world and for marriage it's found in Christ. It's only found in Christ. Christ is the answer to our sin and our rebellion problem. You know, in going our own way, we heaped up this eternal debt before God. A sin against a righteous God. But Jesus came. He died on the cross in submission to his head, his father. He did that for us to completely forgive us of all of our wayward sin. And in addition, he, he gives to us his righteousness, a new standing, even gives to us new hearts, as we've learned about in Colossians, hearts that no longer want to rebel against God. He gives us a heart that now loves God. Come in Christ, our eyes are opened. We see that God is good, his ways are right. And so now in our new self, we don't want to run away from God and his word, his will anymore. We want to run to him. We know that Christ and the gospel, are they're the only hope to fix the mess of this world and the mess of our lives, the mess of our marriage. That's our only hope, Christ and his gospel. Along those lines, the transformation that comes in salvation, that's what enables us to actually be restored in our relationships. You know, before we were purely driven by self-interest. We sat on the throne. We exist on this planet to serve ourselves to the fullest and so we saw our spouses as means to that end. Like, you exist to serve me. Do what I want. You get me this, give me that, serve me. And if I no longer derive happiness from you, well, divorce. But this is so backwards. Only in Christ, though, we're put back into right relationship with God. And that puts us back into right relationship with one another. We realize, like, wait, no, wait a second. We were put on this earth. To serve God. One of the biggest ways I serve God is by serving my spouse. And Christ himself, he gave his life to serve me. I am likewise called to do the same. To deny myself. To put God back on the throne of my heart. And to serve others. And amazingly, that's where I find the most fulfillment in life. You see how it works in marriage. When you have two people who are completely self Driven and selfish. It means they're constantly pulling at their spouse to to give them what they want. They, you serve me, give me what I want, fulfill my desires. But the result, though, is that they're only both going to end up pulling away from one another and dividing, and neither will actually get their needs met. But instead, when you have two people who have died to self and they're committed to serving Christ. It's going to translate into them serving one another to be more focused on meeting the needs of their spouse than themselves. and As a result, they will magically grow closer together. And amazingly, both of their needs still get met. This is the wisdom of God's ways and they're they're better. We need God's ways. I mean, just look at the state of marriage and the family in the world today then it's laughable to suggest that the world's way of doing things is better. And they have no solution to the brokenness of human marriage. And of course, it is broken after the fall. Sin has ruined everything, but they have no answers. Marriage, it's the basic building block of any society, but is so degraded and eroded today, but the world is not better off. The only hope for this life and the next is found in Christ. And I'll take God's word on marriage over the culture's word on marriage any day. Well, I think we've, we've laid enough of a biblical foundation to now get back to Colossians 3 and discuss these specific marriage roles that Paul summarizes for us. He just captures the essence now of how God expects husbands and wives to relate to one another. But, you know, we don't want to take for granted you need that biblical foundation what is headship? What is submission? How do we relate to one another? Let's, let's see it now in, in the context of wives and husbands. Again, verse 18, wives, be subject to your husbands. Or be subject, hupotasso in the Greek means to, to place under, to place in order. It was used of soldiers ranking themselves under a military commander. It speaks of coming under a leader or head's authority. This command to wives is in the present tense, which means it doesn't just apply when feelings arise. This is a pattern of life. Now, of course, we know there are exceptions. The wife is to never follow her husband or submit her husband such that it would lead to sin. You are justified to not submit when it comes to sin. Also, don't submit to abuse. If your husband is abusing you, submission does not mean you just take it. Like, that's a Terrible misrepresentation of what scripture has ever said. No, take it to the authorities. Call the authorities, police, your pastors, whoever, for help. That's not a part of biblical submission, just taking abuse. Those are important disclaimers. But this still is in the present. It's still a pattern of life. And it's also very note to to point out that this command comes in the middle voice. What that actually means is that the wife's submission It's meant to be her voluntary response to God's will. In other words, the husband is not called to make his wife submit. Rather, the wife is called to willingly submit herself to the husband's headship. Now, it's always worth pointing out. You'll always have some who say, you know, know, all these commands, what does it matter? Because these commands, they're antiquated they're culturally conditioned, they don't even apply anymore. This is just about living in the ancient world. But look, as we've seen, headship and submission, they go back to God's created order. They're a reflection of God's own existence. And as Paul makes clear here, we don't look to the culture for how we live. We look to the Lord. He says in verse 18, the submission is fitting in the Lord. It doesn't really matter what the world says. This is just what's fitting in the Lord. And first and foremost, the wife is to submit herself to Christ as her head and leader. And this is a part of that. Her main motive for coming under her husband's leadership is this is fitting in the Lord. This is what my real Lord has for me. But I do want to reiterate again, though, that this submission is not an act of the husband's will but it's entirely an act of the wife's own will. Submission is something the wife does on her own. It is not something the husband demands. And to put it another way, God does not give husbands a little card that reads submit, which they can play whenever they're not getting their way. It's not meant to work that way. That's just a husband's abuse of his power. But this submission that God intends must be self-imposed by the wife in her greater submission to Christ. It's very important to get this dynamic right. This is where a lot of confusion and misunderstanding enters. You know, all too many husbands read this verse as if it's telling them something to do, as if, well, they need to make their wives submit. And that might lead to them to view their wives as servants or subordinates. But again, this command is not directed at them, and we already established that's not the nature of the marriage relationship. The husband does have leadership authority, yes, but the dynamic of how that is lived out is different. That's because husband and wife, we establish, they are equal. They're on completely level ground. They're both made in the image of God. And don't forget, in the union of marriage, the two become one. They're, they're one flesh. And this explains, actually, in the text why consistently Paul calls wives to, yes, submit to their husbands, but not to obey their husbands. That's a subtle but important distinction. Look down in verse 20. What are children called to do to their head, their authority? They're called to obey. Down in verse 22, what are slaves called to do? To obey their masters. Both obey, both active imperatives. But the wife, middle imperative, is called to submit. You know, in the ancient world, those were relationships where superiors just gave orders to subordinates, and that's their only job, just do the order, follow out the order. But you see, that's, it's different though for the husband and wife, because that's not the dynamic God intended for marriage. Just because the husband is the head, he's not the one who just barks out orders all the time. He's not a dictator or a military general. Did not Christ himself teach us that to lead does not mean exercising authority over others and lording it over them, Rather, it means serving them. And headship in Christ is more about leading your wife through sacrificial service than just barking commands at your servant. Now, hopefully, that clears up some potential misunderstanding and misrepresentations of biblical submission. But that being said, the, the command to wives, the call to wives, it, it still stands. It is repeated very often in Scripture. It's something God takes seriously. This is a, a God given role. For the wives. Wives must recognize this as part of God's created order, God's own internal order. God is a God of order. And so by their own faith in Christ, they are called to submit to Him as all of us. But that will lead them to just willfully and joyfully coming alongside and coming under their husband's headship and leadership to support the family. Now, husbands have a role to play too. The only way this works is if both husband and wife come together to serve as God directed. And for husbands, that looks like verse 19. Husbands, love your wives. You know, in the ancient world, it was common for wives to be told to submit to their husbands, but it was entirely unheard of for husbands to be told to love their wives. There's not a single ancient code we have that has this command for husbands to love their wives. This is a revolutionary type of command that most take for granted. And so it's worth exploring. this word for love here famously is agapeo. It does not speak of friendship love or emotional love. This is that distinctively Christian self-sacrificial love. This love is a decision of the will that puts others, the interests of others ahead of self. It will even lay down self for the good of others and i think this love is embodied in Philippians 2 3 and 4 where paul said do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves and do not merely look out for your own personal interests but also the interests of others that is this love and understand this it is this selfless sacrificial Christ-like love that is meant to moderate the husband's authority. This love is meant to be a check on the husband's role as head. So that he does not abuse his role, but uses it only for his family's good. You know, the husband who truly loves his wife like this would never lead her into something harmful or hurtful. Or seek his own personal good at the expense of his wife or children's good. That's not love. And let me tell you, this is more countercultural than the wife's submission. I mean that. Let me explain that. You know, for most in the world, throughout history, why do they get married? Because they fall in love. What is that love? It's largely just a feeling and an emotion for them. And that love is largely dependent on how the other person makes you feel. You love your wife because of what she does for you, how she makes you feel. But it also explains why people fall out of love. You know, you no longer please me, you no longer do the things I want you to do. You don't don't give me what I want. You don't make me feel good anymore. But do you see how ultimately that's a very selfish love, a very self-centered way of thinking about love. That other person only has value in so much as what they can do for you. And it's no wonder that love often doesn't last. But this Christ-like agape love it is focused on Christ and the other person, not self. Yeah, of course, it comes with feelings and emotions, but it's ultimately based on this commitment to pursue God's glory and the other person's good. And this love is unconditional. It's not conditioned on what this other person does or sometimes how they make you feel. No, it's more focused on just serving God. And that comes often through just serving the other person. I mean, it's not, is that not how Christ himself loved the church? He gave himself up for her, Ephesians 5. The longer version says he died for the church, his bride. That's what the head does. He sets aside his own interests for the good, truly the good, and will lay down his life for her. That's true love. And that's true leadership. That's true headship. It's a giving of self. This is what the Christian husband has been called to do. And it's completely radical compared to the love of the Greeks or the love of the Romans, the love of Shakespeare, the love of today. This is radically different. It requires a daily dying to self for the good of your wife. And look, that's very hard. Spirit is willing though the flesh is weak. We're still selfish. And I find that most men, myself included, will, will easily say like, yeah, I would die for my wife. Yeah, I'd take a bullet for my wife, of course. But that is the easy part. It is very hard to die daily to self, to lay down your life every day for your wife. And you know what's hard is turning down those free tickets to the game with your friends because you've been gone every night that week and your wife just wants a special time a night with you that's hard it's hard to come home after a long day's work see her equally exhausted from caring from the kids all day and so you take over to give her some time alone that's hard it's hard to discipline yourself to be in god's word daily that you might lead your wife and kids to be in god's word daily that's hard but this is love this is biblical love it's been said that husbands have the more difficult command, the more difficult role in headship. And I think that's true. When you understand the roles, husbands, you're given headship and leadership in the home. Yes, there can only be one head. Someone has to, to be that, that ultimate leader to set the course. But it's just that they, there's a catch. You can't use an ounce of it selfishly or for yourself. You have to use all of it for the good of your wife and children. It's like you, you get that magical ramp lamp. I saw Jamie this morning is wearing a tie with the Aladdin genie on it. You find genie, you rub the lamp, he gives you three wishes, but there's a catch. You can't use any of them for your own good. You must use all of your wishes for the good of another. Like that's the catch of your headship. You have authority in your home. But but God. Moderates that with this love which dictates you use it purely unselfishly only for the good, the biblical good of your wife and children. That is radical. That's hard, but it is good. And husbands, we need to aspire to this. And you just focus on loving your wives as Christ loved the church. And as Paul adds here in verse 19, do not become embittered against them. This refers to a bitter or resentful spirit. And it can be very difficult if you set your heart to serve your spouse, serve your kids selflessly. You're going to put their needs ahead of your own. You're just going to think about them. But what if they never reciprocate? What if they never fulfill their role or play their part or meet your needs? And sometimes that happens. But still, he says, don't become embittered against them. Easy to do, but, but don't do it don't resent them. That would just reveal a selfish heart that what? You're only serving them because of what you might get out of it? No, we got to keep it straight. Our love as husbands is also under the Lord. This is what the Lord expects of us. This is how we are submitting to our Lord and head Christ. You just focus on one thing. You just focus on loving your wives as Christ loved the church. And that's it. It's all God expects of you. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Well, our time has been brief. Our time is nearly up. But this gives you a picture of how new life in Christ is meant to transform marriage. And this is new. This is radically different from the world. The world today still scoffs at what the Bible says about marriage. They ridicule. They they laugh at it. Can you think of one TV show that portrays the biblical roles of husband and wife in a positive light? I can't think of one. But, you know, I hope you can see the contrast between the church and the world. See that contrast. Let it sink in. For in the world, given the fallen heart of man, the only unconditional commitment that you make in your marriage vows is is to yourself. I vow to be with you so long as you meet my needs. But as soon as this relationship interferes with my self-health or wellness or happiness, I'll probably leave you. It's so tragic and it leads to so much hurt. Many of you know this, but as Christians, we need to set the way of the Lord before us. It's it's just our only hope and it can fix messes too. Now, as Christians, we need to remember though that, you know, we once, we were no better. We were no different. We once were just as lost and sinful and selfish. The only reason we're different now is just God's grace. The grace of God in Christ has made us new and enabled us to see things differently in God's ways. We've been given a new self. Our eyes have been opened to the glory of God's ways. We need to remember that. But also remember that the flesh is still there and and selfishness still remains in our flesh. That's why Christians can still have problems in marriage. But here we see God's pattern in marriage. It's so important to be reminded of God's word, his will, his pattern. To see its glory and its beauty and how it reflects God himself. And as we walk by the Spirit, we have the solution. We have hope. We have hope that things can be different. So I hope today in a roundabout way that you gain hope. There is still hope for marriage in this crazy world. And there's hope for your own marriage. And in the way of the Lord, there is life and peace it's just that as Jesus himself taught that the way up is the way down. And what is greatness? It's not to be served. It's to serve. It's where you lay down your life for others. You have to die to self and you just give yourself to Christ as his servant. But you'll find a greater self-fulfillment than you ever knew existed. And in Christ, you can then find a true joy and peace in and with your spouse. God wants you to delight in your spouse, to live in peace, to enjoy life. but His way is the only way. It's your only hope. But I hope you have some hope. And the key is Christ. Make Christ the center of your marriage, where you both believe in him, follow him, you both submit to him, and he will give you all the direction and guidance and power you need to live out this newness you have in your home, in your marriage. Let's do that. Let's pray. Now, Father, we thank you for your word, and, and though we know our culture today, with this here exactly, uh, is so opposed, has turned their hearts against it, and would have us do the same, but we must not. We believe in you. We see your ways are good and better. You're, you're best. In fact, this is just part of who you are. As a triune God, it's, it's our glory to reflect your image as husbands and wives with headship and leadership. Help us just to all to submit to Christ as our Lord, everything he says and does. That's part of faith, just trusting and believing. You are good. Your ways are wise. And we see how they give life and they give hope. This is so different from the world, but the way of Christ, the way down is, is the way up. Convict us to deny ourselves and to put to death the selfishness that remains. And you're so good though, Lord, as we ser- uh, serve others and serve our spouse, we find a fulfillment we never knew existed. But convict us, help us, give us hope, lead it, help it lead to change in our marriages offer your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.